So it is with great excitement that I get to stand up here this morning as your pastor and say to you, good morning. <laughs> what a great God we serve. Your lo long process of looking for a pastor is over. The search committee can finally rest. Yeah. <laughs> that deserves a cheer. And my process of trying to find out where God is calling me is over. So now we together can dive into the process of seeing this church grow. Not because we want just more numbers here, but because we want more worshipers of God. That is our goal. So we, we will get into this work, we will, we will watch this, because God has started this work, he's going to bring it to completion, and he asks us to participate in it, and so we get to join him in doing it. In fact, we get this opportunity this afternoon with this family fun fest, we get to do God's work, he's going to do it through us. And, and this work that he's doing, it's already blown my mind, Meg's mind, because of how much uh, some, something's going on. Spirit's moving. <laughs> because of how much God is doing for our family through you. Uh, the meals that have been brought to us, all of the work that's been done on the parsonage, our pantry being filled, uh, so many things. The painting, it's amazing. To anybody who's done anything, the things that we've seen, the things that we haven't seen, thank you. It's been a huge blessing. So, now that we are all here, now that I am your pastor, I thought it would be appropriate to take a couple minutes and tell you what I think the next few months are going to look like for me. So, I've never been a preacher. I've preached, but I've never been a preacher. So, it's going to take me a little bit of time to figure out what it means to prepare sermons week in and week out. I need to set up a routine and a discipline, and that's going to take me some time to figure out. So, I'm going to be focusing on that quite a bit. And, and starting next week, we are going to be beginning in the book of Mark. And I anticipate that Mark is going to take us about a year to work through. So get ready. Mark for a year. And then, since my family is absolutely new to the area, we have no idea where we are. And people are naming places and streets, and we don't even know what you're talking about. Uh, so we have to familiar, familiarize ourselves with the area, but also we don't have any understanding of the culture of Utica, of Emmanuel, trying to figure all of that out. So we want to um, meet with as many of you as possible. I want to meet with at least one member of every family in this church. I want to hear from you. I want to learn from you. I want to hear what you have to say about Emmanuel and about the Mohawk Valley, where you see it should be going, where well, maybe what's been holding it back. So... I'm looking to learn from all of you um, in, in that kind of way. I need to find out what this place is all about. And then as I begin to figure that out, you know, the, the culture of the community, uh, then I can begin understanding what are the best ways to engage uh, th this greater community. Because I want to see God working within these walls and outside of these walls. So you're going to help me in that, in understanding that. And then finally, the next thing I'll be doing for the next few months and years, and as long as I have breath, is praying. Um, I have started praying for Emmanuel months ago. I'm praying now, uh, and I'm going to be trying to immerse myself in prayer for this church, for all of you, uh, for what happens up here. Uh, and amazingly, there's this opportunity for all of us on Wednesday night at 6.30 to come together and pray. This Wednesday, I plan on being there, and I'd love to see a lot of you there. We can come together and pray for this church, because if we want lasting and meaningful change to happen to Emmanuel, it's not going to happen without prayer. We have to be in prayer. So join me, join the people that already gather in praying for this church. All right, why don't we do it now? Why don't we pray right now? God, you are a good and holy God, and you've chosen us. You've chosen us to come to life, to be your children, and you've chosen us to serve you. And what a joy that is. Lord, I pray you would fill our hearts with 
uh, excitement for that work and motivation and diligence that we might accomplish the works that you have prepared for us. Lord, I pray for this message this morning that you would speak through me, that you would affect change in all of our hearts in this room because of your great and mighty word, your valuable, precious word. We commit this time to you and trust that your spirit's at work and you will uh, not allow your word to return void. I pray in Christ's name, amen. So we're starting in Mark next week, but this week we're going to be in Psalm 19. So open up your Bibles to Psalm 19. Since my primary role at Emmanuel is to bring the word every week, I thought it would be very fitting to start with a passage that's talking all about the word and how valuable it is. So that's my goal today. So listen, my goal today is to communicate how valuable, how precious is the word of God. So we're not, yeah, if you go away just understanding a little bit more of how valuable the word is, that's, that's what I hope happens. So I'm going to read Psalm 19. As I read it, I want you to remember that this is written by King David, the greatest king that Israel has ever had. Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out throughout all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens, and its circuit to the ends of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Have you walked through the streets of New York City and looked up at the massive buildings and said to yourself, isn't God amazing? Have you held a smartphone in your hands and said to yourself, God is so powerful? Or have you seen a beautiful classic car and just erupted into song praising God? I think that it's fairly unlikely that that is true. No, I think there is something else that has that effect on us. Nature. Creation. It is God's great announcement to all people everywhere that God exists we look up and we see the stars set at unimaginable distances from one another, and we think of a God who has placed each one of them, a supernatural God, big enough to have done that. Only a God who is divine, who is supernatural, who is beyond what is natural, can separate stars light years, millions of light years apart. When we see the ocean raging in a storm or lightning flashing from sky to earth in a moment or the rain wash away the landscape like Carl's driveway recently, <laughs> we see a God who is powerful, with a power far surpassing anything that we could possibly produce. God has announced himself through creation. 
The heavens declare the glories of God. And as God reveals himself through creation, it's supposed to have an effect on us. It's supposed to turn us to him so that we worship him and we rejoice in him. We seek him. We look at at the beauty, the creativity, the scale, the power of creation, and we should worship the God who has made it. And this is exactly what David is doing in these verses. He is worshiping the God who made it all. I'm looking for a spare stand. All right. So I've been in the mountains in every season. I've seen every kind of weather condition. Um, I love the Northeast Mountains. They are beautiful. And I have been blown away over and over again by the treasures that God, oh, thank you, that God has set into place all over the, oh, thanks. Do you need the instruction book too? I don't think I need the instruction book. Here, this is for you. So he has set these treasures all over the mountains for us to go out there and find, for me to go out there and find, and I have loved doing that. This is great. But a couple years ago, I took a few men into the Pemigewaset wilderness of New Hampshire, and I saw something there I've never seen before, and I'm likely to never see again. So it was our third and last day on the trail, and we, we had an early start that morning before sunrise. And totally coincidentally, pro- probably providentially, we ended up getting to the summit of Mount Liberty just as the sun was rising. And it was a partially cloudy day, very, very windy. We could look across at the bottom of, of the clouds, sort of like underneath of a table. And the, the sun was cresting. It was coming through those clouds with these beams of sideways light illuminating the mountains in purples. And, and pinks and oranges. It was beautiful. And then to our west was a deep, uh, is a deep notch, the Franconia notch, actually, if you're familiar with it, that clouds were blowing through. And so we stood on the summit. The sun was rising in the east, and it illuminated our shadows onto the cloud blowing through Franconia notch. So we could stand on the summit and wave our hands and see it on the cloud in the notch. And then... The sun, I don't know how it happened, but the sun hit us, hit us and the cloud just right, that the cloud illuminated and a rainbow formed around our shadows in a circle. It encircled us. It was amazing. And I was with three other men, and immediately we just were filled with praise. We, we erupted in worship. And I stood up on this rock on the summit with my Bible in hand, and I shouted into the wind, Psalm 19 because it perfectly captured the experience. The heavens declare the glories of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. It is true. And not only is it true, it's consistent. Look again at verse 2. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. Every day, every night, every day of the year, as long as the sun has been rising... God has been speaking. He has been revealing himself. Knowledge, the knowledge of God is constantly going out. Verse 3 says that this speech that creation is speaking, all this knowledge, it's being heard. It's not going out into emptiness. It's being heard. Every voice, every word that God communicates through nature is heard. So when I was, what I was hearing on top of Mount Liberty, perhaps what you were hearing the other night when the lightning was flashing in the sky, what people all over the world are hearing as they observe creation is the voice of God saying, I exist. It's heard by all people in all places, in all cultures. So says verse 4. Everyone can discern God's divine nature and power through creation. It's called the general revelation of God. Simply because it's generally available to everybody. In fact, listen to Romans 1.20. If you'd like to turn there, go ahead. You can just listen, though. Romans 1.20 says, For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. 
so that no one is without excuse. Every single human being can perceive God through creation. For the heavens proclaim the glories of God. So all those people who've never heard about Jesus, they've never read the Bible, they can know that God exists, that he is powerful and that he is divine. Every person is without excuse. Let's look at the next section, verses 4, 5, and 6. And this section is interesting. It seems almost out of place. I'll read them. The end of verse 4, I'll start in. In them he has set a tent for the sun, in which, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the ends of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So David's just been talking about the glories of God in, in creation, the general revelation of God, and then suddenly he begins talking about the sun coming out of a tent. It seems a little odd. A bridegroom is an engaged man, and he's usually found his bride at great cost to himself. In this case, the bridegroom has prepared himself. Sorry. He's ready for the wedding. He's ready to meet his bride. So he leaves his tent of preparation to go get his beloved. He leaves the tent with strength and with joy. He's excited to be united with his bride. Also, the sun rises like a strong man or like an athlete. The athlete has trained hard and long for his race day. He's beaten his body into the perfect condition. And now it is race day, the day he's been preparing for. He's ready. He's strong. So he bursts from the starting line full of strength and joy because this is the moment he's been waiting for. So that's what David is, is saying the son is like, a bridegroom and an athlete, the son full of strength and joy. Then in the course of the day, there's nothing hidden from the heat of the sun. Uh, the sun, it heats up everything that its light is cast upon. And it, again, it might seem out of place, all of this sun talk, even though the sun's in nature, but he's talking about the sun in a very unique way, isn't he? So I'm going to come back to these verses near the end, because there is a very interesting parallel, which I think is why God has placed this in the passage, and it's exciting. So we're going to move forward. We're in verse 7 now. Because here in verse 7, Psalm 19 takes a turn. I'm going to read verses 7 and 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So David's been talking about the general revelation of God. And now he begins to write about something altogether different. He begins to write about the law, the special revelation of God. So unlike general revelation, which is generally available to everybody, special revelation is the revelation of God we find in Scripture, in the Word. It's different because it actually describes who God is, what our relationship to Him is, and our condition. And you can't get those things by looking at trees and streams and stars. You can only get it from the Bible, from this book. This word of God is the only place to find this special revelation of where God is and, and how to know him truly. But when David was writing, he didn't have this. He only had the law. The law is found in our Bibles in the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. When you hear the law, that's what he's referring to. The Torah, the law. And how David loves the law. There's nothing in the world that you and I can look at and say, perfect. Sin has entered the world. It's in a fallen state. There's imperfections and inconsistencies. There's trouble all around and we can't look at anything and say perfect, but the law is absolutely lawless. It's without error. It's perfect. And not only is the law 
perfect, but it was given for our good. When we look at the law, and we see its, its great perfection, four things should happen to us, or they certainly happen to David, according to verses 7 and 8. Our souls are revived. It causes our hearts to rejoice. It gives us wisdom, and it enlightens our eyes. These four things are the product of the law in us. You see, the law is so good because it reflects our perfect God. And so our souls are lifted to the heights of heaven, into the very throne room of God, into his presence. And our hearts rejoice because we know that God gave us this law as a gift to us. For our good, it shows us how to live. It protects us from harm. There is a right way for us humans to live. A way of righteousness. It is a good and pleasant way. And the law displays that righteousness. The righteousness of God. And it shows us how to live that way. And you see, obeying that law pleases God. And when we please God, it is our greatest pleasure. The law gives us wisdom because it acts like a knife between right and wrong. And it enlightens our eyes. It allows us to see God in his perfection. And it allows us to see us in our condition, how we truly are. How good and nourishing the law is. And it should be a delight for us to feast upon and that is exactly where David goes in verses 10 and 11. I'll read, or sorry, just in verse 10. I'll read verse 10 for you. More to be desired are they than, the, than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. This book is more valuable than gold, even much fine gold. In fact, all of the gold that you could find in Fort Knox, it's pocket change compared to the surpassing worth of the word of God. Anything that you could buy, anything, land or houses or gadgets or retirement or vacation, you name it, anything that you could buy pales in comparison to the worth of the word of God. And think of the best food you've ever eaten. For me, it is an extra thick, coffee milkshake. I love an extra thick coffee milkshake. But as delicious as that is, the word of God, the law of the Lord is far sweeter. So you think of what that thing is for you, whether it be an extra thick coffee milkshake or the finest wine or a cold drink on a hot day or the sweetest drippings from a honeycomb whatever that may be, the law is sweeter than that. Verse 11, all those warnings that we find in the law. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Those warnings, they might seem restricting to us. They might feel like chains that keep us from doing what we really want. They are for our good. They are to keep us from harm. And they bring to us a great reward. What is that great reward? Life eternal. But it's not just us sitting in clouds and playing harps and singing songs together. We get to know God and be known by God, fully and completely known by God, loved by God. And in return, love one another fully, completely, without sin, forever. The God who spun the galaxies into existence, he invites us into relationship with himself. What a wonder, what a great reward that is. But, you probably have already thought it, the law has another side to it. The law shows us how good and holy God is. It shows us 
how to live. It shows us how to be at peace with God. But we have real trouble maintaining that peace. We cannot keep the law. And as a result, the law is crushing. Maybe not. Maybe you think that you can keep the law. You, know, you might think about the Ten Commandments. There's only ten of them. It's not that hard to keep the Ten Commandments. But you know, there are actually 613 different commandments in the law. I look at that. Those 613 different commandments, and I feel absolutely <laughs> dismayed because I cannot do it. James 2.10, to put an exclamation point on it, James 2.10 says, if we break one of the tiniest little laws, we have broken every single law. It shows suddenly, with that one sin, that we are not perfect, that we are not worthy of the glory of God. We fall short of it. The law of the Lord is perfect. It revives the soul. But when I look at the law and how far short of it I fall, my soul is downcast because I could never hope to live up to the law. And I think we get a flash of that in David when we get to verses 12 and 13. I'll read them. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So after saying these wonderful things about the law, David is suddenly concerned about being filled with errors, of falling short of the law. He even says, declare me innocent of hidden faults. So David knows there are sins he's committed that he doesn't even know about. He's a man who is wrought with sin. Sin he commits knowingly or presumptuously, and sin he commits completely unaware of it. It is a hopeless state that we find ourselves in, is it not? We fall short of the law. That is called sin. Sin separates us from, from our holy God. It separates us to such a degree that it's hopeless for us to work ourselves back into God's favor. Utterly hopeless. With one law broken, we've broken all of the law. You and I can no longer please God according to the law. And he says to us, not righteous. And we are condemned under the law. But somehow, without Jesus and without the writings of Paul, David knows that there is another way. He says, declare me innocent and keep me from sin. Do not let sin have dominion over me. See, David knows that his hope is not in the law, but in the lawgiver. The law is good and perfect, but David is not, and neither am I, and neither are you. Our only hope is that God would make us perfect. That God would take the righteousness found in the law and apply it to us. You see, there is one called the Son of David. The first verse of the first book of the New Testament says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Adam, uh, sorry, the son of Abraham. Jesus, the son of David, is the one who would remove the burden of the law, and he would take away the need to meet all those 630, 13 requirements, demands of perfection. For those 33 years that Jesus walked the earth, he did that. He actually did that. He met every single law. He lived perfectly. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 5, 17, I did not think or do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus was the only person ever to walk this earth. Perfectly, meeting every requirement of the law. And as a result, listen, as a result, the law is fulfilled. 
one major requirement. It was one requirement of the law that completed it. Sin must be atoned for, removed, destroyed by death. Death is the consequence of sin. The law demands that for sin, death is paid. Animal sacrifices in the Old Testament were used for a while, but it was ultimately insufficient. You had to keep doing it. You had to keep killing animals more and more and more blood, and it was never enough. So Christ, he laid himself down, and he spilled his own blood for our sake, for our sins. With this final act to meet the requirements of the law, with sins paid for, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, It is finished! The law was completed, was fulfilled, finished. That means that Jesus accomplished righteousness. The righteousness that was the goal of the law. So when we trust in Jesus, the requirements of the law for us are gone. God declares us righteous in Jesus Christ. Is this not amazing to you? That the righteousness of Jesus Christ would be given to you simply by putting your faith in him, your trust in him, your hope in him. The righteousness of Christ is yours. So at this point, we have a decision to make. We have two choices, don't we? We can try to work for our salvation. We can try to earn our salvation and, and try to become righteous by obeying God, by meeting the requirements of the law or so obeying some moral code. And you might find that moral code in the Bible, but you might also find a moral code in the Quran or in society or from somewhere else. Either way, if you're trying to meet that to become righteous, to become good enough. You're living under the law. And so here are a few symptoms of what it's like to live under the law. And I think we all get plagued by these symptoms from time to time. If you think that you need to do anything to be saved, anything at all, you are living under the law. If you constantly feel guilty because of your sins, if you constantly wonder, am I really saved? If you constantly compare yourself to, under, to other people, you're living under the law. There's the second option. You know that you cannot make yourself righteous. You know that sin plagues you at every turn. And so you trust that Jesus has fulfilled the law and that he has paid for your sins and now his righteousness is given to you. You are now free from condemnation and from guilt. You are free from the law. You are free from sin. And you are free to live righteously. You're free. The second half of verse 13. Look at it with me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. God has done that in Jesus. Sin does not rule us. We have been declared innocent, and our many transgressions have been removed, and we are forgiven. What a wonder this is. So what David is praying for in Psalm 19, at the advent of Israel, at the height of Israel, rather, God answers that prayer in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. So I told you I'd come back to that sun coming out of the tent. Let's look at it again. Verses, the end of 4, verses 5 and 6. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber 
and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. So Jesus is like the sun, the sun in this passage. And David doesn't know this, but I think God is placing this little foreshadowing of Jesus into this illustration of the sun. Because like a bridegroom, ready for his bride, the church, Jesus paid everything, even his own life, to redeem that bride, to purify his church. And he's like a strong man, like that trained athlete. He came in strength, and he fulfilled the law. And he was, this is amazing, he was strong enough to restrain himself and all of his divine power as nails were being driven through his hands. And then, like that bridegroom coming from a tent, like a strong man from the starting line, Jesus burst forth from the grave. And he, he finished the course. He completed the circuit. And now he stands in the heavens, fully glorified, with his brilliance radiating over the whole earth. And the heat of that brilliance is filling the earth. And one day will completely and ultimately transform it. And our sin will burn away in the same way that the morning fog is burnt off by the sun. Nothing is hidden from the righteousness of God. Nothing. He is the light of the world. So I said you have two choices. We have two choices. Trust in ourselves to live a good enough life to try to earn our salvation, to produce a righteousness, or trust in Christ for that righteousness that we cannot earn. So I implore you to trust in Jesus. He has done everything so that we can have eternal life, so that we can live freely. Jesus extends his hand and he beckons and he offers his own life, his own righteousness to you, to me, to all of us, to everybody who's going to show up here today. Jesus extends himself to them. He extends himself them. So here is an amazing thought. To choose to, be, to accept the love of the Father, love that is eternal from the Father, is to choose eternal life. That was basic. Now, maybe, for, perhaps, this is a profound thought. For God's love to be eternal it cannot be broken. That means if we accept his love, we cannot die. If we were to die, that love would be broken. So to accept the love of the Father is to live forever. You see how that works. The love of the Father will never end. Therefore, your life cannot end by necessity. Not for you, but so that God's love can continue on into infinity. And as a result... For you. <laughs> so what do we do? What do people do who come today and people that we meet on the streets? What, what do we do? Jesus says that you need to be born again. Raise your hand if you in this room were chosen to be born to your mother. That is amazing. I'm going to talk to your mom and find out how that worked. Um, no, I don't think you did. I don't think anybody chooses to be born. And we cannot choose to be born. We cannot save ourselves. God does this work for us. So what we can do, even though we, we can't be born again, I still say you fall on your knees before God and you cry out to him that he would save you, that he would bring you to life, from death to life, that he would cause you to be born again. And I think that if you're praying those things, if you are saying those things, then something is going to happen in you. You will be born again. You will experience the freedom that comes with trusting in Jesus Christ. He has brought you 
from death, the death of sin, the death of the condemnation of the law. He's brought you from that death and the death eternal that awaits into life, into his love, and to his life and love eternal. That is for you. And so you will have a freedom and a joy that cannot be taken from you, that nothing in this world can shake. So, O son or daughter of God, praise him. Praise him. You are his, and you cannot be taken from him. Okay, there are two verses, if you're being astute, that you may have thought I skipped over. I didn't. I was just waiting. Verse 9. Let's read it. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Here he goes again, talking about eternal things. The fear of the Lord endures forever. So those who trust in Christ are children of God, right? And what is this fear of the Lord talk? Children are not supposed to be afraid of their dad. We're not scared of God, but we as his children, we look at him in his infinite power, powerful to spin the galaxies into, into existence, powerful enough to, I don't know, <laughs> to flood the world. We look at him and we stand in awe and we are amazed by him and then when that powerful, that infinitely powerful God in all of his glory chooses to look at us and say to us, child, we are amazed at that God. And that endures, that love endures forever. And forever we live to enjoy it. And becoming that child, becoming a child of God who loves his father, who is in awe of his father, it gives us eyes to see that the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So as a result, we want to live righteously, not because it's a demand for us and we have to do it under the law, but precisely because God loves us and it's who he is. He has placed in us his love and the righteousness of Christ. So why would we hold that righteousness in? Why would it not come pouring out of us? Why would not let it come pouring out of us? It's in us. He's given it to us. And so because of our love for him, we want the righteousness of Christ to come out of us. The same righteousness fulfilled in the law. Paul says that to live is Christ. So we let that life of Christ out. Not because of obligation, but because of love. So as children of God and as the bride of Christ, we want this to be true of us. And so we have to pray. And we come to the final verse in Psalm 19, Psalm 19, 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. David is praying. God, let me be true. Let me be wholly authentic. Let me be righteous. Every word that I speak, even my deepest, darkest thoughts, let them be right. Let them be good. Let me please you. I want an undivided heart. I want to be wholly authentic. I don't want to feel like I'm schizophrenic, constantly dealing with my sinful nature here and constantly dealing with the nature of the spirit here. No, I want to be wholly united, righteous, pure. So we pray that he would give us mouths and minds that please him. but how we're going to fail, how I fail all the time. The end of verse 14 says, O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer, God will carry us. We are going to fail. We'll fail a lot. God is our rock 
and he will not let us ultimately fail. He has made us children of his family, and he will never cast us out. So sometimes when we're, when we're in sin, when we're feeling the guilt of it, we, we wonder if we've somehow lost our salvation. Not to belittle the thought, because it plagues us. It's like a dog at our heels. But I want to show you how ridiculous the dog is. God bought you at such an incredible price. The blood of his own son. Oh, and he says to you, child, now what would he say because of your sin? That blood of my son is no longer worth it. Never. You're his child forever. You cannot lose your salvation, son and daughter of glory. So that dog comes at your heels, you kick it as hard as you can. That is a lie from hell. So on that day, when we see him face to face, he is going to transform us. And all of this that we, that we are dealing with now, the, the flesh and the spirit and trying to be united, when we see him, we will be in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be transformed to be like him. And we will not just be declared righteous, but we will be made righteous. Fully perfect. Praise God, because that's on the horizon. That is coming. So you see, we can only know these things because of the word of God. These great and marvelous truths, these are the special revelation of God. Yes, in creation, God declares himself as we observe his power and his glory and his divine nature. But in this book, we get to see God as he truly is. We get to see ourselves as we truly are, and we get to see what it means to have a relationship with our Father. This book, this word of God is more desirable than anything else, more to be desired than anything you can name. So it's my hope that as you spend time diving into this word, you will see the great treasure that it is and it will be a joy for you. You will enjoy feasting on this. This is a great pleasure. And the one thing you're going to find in here, the one thing that we find in here, the greatest thing that our soul longs for, that we find in the word of God, is God himself. going to pray. God, we were not worthy when we did nothing that would cause you to look on us and say righteous, but you have done it all through your son. And we're so thankful. Father, we are so thankful. Lord, I pray that in each one of us, our desire for the word, which is probably smaller than it ought to be, would grow. And we take pleasure in pouring through these pages and seeing your face. Keep us from error and keep us in the truth. Lord, I pray that today as we are among um, friends and strangers and family, whoever might show up, that we would reflect the righteousness of Christ to them. And they would see something, they would see the light of Christ, and they would want it. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. I'd now like to invite the elders to come up for communion.
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all things, had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter and said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus just answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now. But afterwards, you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet, Jesus answered him. If I do not wash your feet, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean. And then Jesus went to the cross and his body was broken.